Hello, friends. Tired of traditional car dealerships pushing you around for five hours just to end up with a payment that's more than you can afford? They're not your friends, but you know who is your BFF? Volkswagen of Boise. They have a non-commission sales team that genuinely cares about your vehicle needs. Not ready to buy today? No pressure. Come back when you're ready, and they'll make the process easy and hassle-free with upfront pricing and a no-haggle philosophy. Volkswagen, engineered to buy easy. For more info, go to volkswagenofboise.com. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast, where we talk all things Treasure Valley. We're your hosts, Shane and Natalie Plummer. Welcome back to the conversation. Happy day, everybody, and thank you to our guests for joining us on the Boise Bubble Podcast. Um, on past episodes, we've had some conversations about the growth of the Treasure Valley. And uh, for many of us who've been here for a long time, there's, there's been a lot of change. So many uh, parcels of farmland are turning into developments. A lot of them are multifamily housing. Uh, we've got a lot more retail, which most of us like, but um, all in all, the development process can sometimes feel a little bit scary because it is the it's it's the final result of change and growth. When you see buildings come up on an empty lot or when you see an old farmhouse disappear and then all of a sudden there's a, apartments on it, it can be a little bit unsettling for people. And so we thought that we'd have a conversation today with two people that are involved in the de, in the development world, um, Caitlin Charles and Michael Slavin of the L3 Group. So welcome. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. We're excited to have you here. Um, let's start with some basic introductions. Uh, we know that you two are developers, but let's hear a little bit about your story because I uh, we found them somewhat interesting. Caitlin, kick us off. Great. So I grew up here in Boise. Uh, I went to Jackson Elementary and then I was part of the first graduating class of Rocky Mountain. So I've seen Idaho through a lot of different faces. My family had a business here for a very long time. Um, and while I loved growing up here, I, I struggled. I actually didn't think I would ever come back to Idaho. Um, I had really grand visions for what I wanted to do. And, and I felt, I, I think part of this is being a kid, like you're very limited just to what's, what your group in your school is. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like I wasn't meeting the kind of people that had similar aspirations. Sure. And so I moved to Hong Kong. Okay. As, as is just the normal. Sure. Yeah, the, the <laughs> most normal reaction to that. Um, Get and, as far away as you possibly can, which I don't think that anybody <laughs> can be faulted for that. When you're in high school, you don't know what's going on. And, and you did, most people don't have separate data points to compare either. You have to get away to have something to compare. I remember when we were here for college the first time, it was my freshman year. I didn't know year. him or anything. No, but like a, I was going to school in eastern Idaho. And my impression at the time was I was just a dumb kid. I thought, I'm not going to come back to Idaho. But later in life, it looked much different. Yeah. So anyway, I digress, but uh, <laughs> Hong Kong, crazy. Yeah, and, and the funny thing about that is, you know, I, I'm not sure how aware people are of this, but Idaho actually is very diverse. Like the elementary school that I went to growing up was a public school that was an English as a second language school. Mm -hmm. And so the kids that I did feel connected to were from Egypt and for, from Bosnia. And that's who I was really finding a connection with. So it made total sense in retrospect that I moved to Hong Kong and I found a group of people that were kind of misfits from everywhere um, that were also, you know, just had a had a very broad perspective on the world that that's where I would feel very much at home. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I was there for seven years. I went to university there. I worked in luxury advertising. I worked for the American Chamber of Commerce. Um, and I started a business there. And then ultimately, it was kind of time in my head to move back to the States. So I went to California and I lived in San Francisco for two years. And it was there that I started working with early stage businesses and kind of getting more into the financial side and and investment, particularly with um, financial technology and then with consumer products. Um, And then I was living in New York when the pandemic hit. So it's not a great place to be living during the pandemic. Absolutely not. Um, So I'd already planned a trip back to Boise to see my family. I watched New York lockdown, had no intentions of of staying. And while I was here, I was like, you know, I think there's some really interesting things here. I, I actually don't love New York. I didn't love San Francisco. Maybe I'm not a city person. This lifestyle is pretty amazing. And so I started reaching out to anyone in the community that looked interesting. And I reached out to Michael and um, we had such, you know, phenomenal conversations from the very beginning. And I was so inspired by this development that he was working on and the fact that he had such a strong appreciation for Idaho and wanting to really maintain the values, but also shepherd in this new era because everything changes. You know, if you're not changing, you're dying. Mm -hmm. And so I was really excited about the prospect of someone that had this appreciation, but also had a very beautiful vision for what Idaho could be going forward. Um, And so, you know, he's really, Michael and Orchard Park are really why I came back. That's a great story. Uh, and it's interesting you say that because um, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is that um, so my friend Mel, who owns Coffee and Supply Co., is strangely like the connector of like, it's crazy. She has introduced me to so many people because people come through her coffee shop and she'll say, you guys should meet. And and that's what happened with Michael. And we just sat down and chatted over coffee for a while. And um, I called Shane right afterwards and I'm like, I really feel like we need to have Michael come talk on the podcast because, we, you know, we came here into Idaho 11 years ago because of change, because of development. And so we have dealt with a lot of developers. We've developed, you know, we, we deal with a lot of people, but I really loved what you said is that I did feel this sense that you were being very um, intentional about the projects that you're working on and that that conversation was extremely valuable. So I I, I can totally see why you ha- would have that meeting and then feel like you wanted to be part of it. Cause I, I kind of felt that way too. Like I, this is something I could get behind. Mm. So Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Sure, yeah, it's um, where to start. I guess like life trajectory is always the best to give people context. I, I grew up in a really small town in Idaho. And when I say small, it's also very remote called Salmon Idaho. It's on the Idaho Montana border. It's, you know, three hours to the nearest shopping mall or probably, you know, at the time, you know, town of over 10,000 people. Yeah. And so you're really with this really small context community. But I, I was lucky enough that, you know, my mom, ironically enough, was from Southern California. Um, she met my dad when she was 12 and he was 14. Her, her family had actually homesteaded in Idaho in the late 1800s. And for that reason, we would always get this this three month escape to Seal Beach, California, mm-hmm. mm. which was so fun. You, you know, kind of like what what Kaylin's saying is, you know, the, the the even weirder thing about a smaller town is your first day of kindergarten, you're introduced to pretty much every playmate you're going to have for twelve years, yeah. and pre- every dating potential you're going to have for twelve years. Then you're removed for cousins, 
And there's probably like two. <laughs> so, Shane's from a town of 350 in Arkansas. Uh, so oh, he knows. It he was tiny. It. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, there's so many wonderful qualities of that, and I'll bring that in later, you know, in a view and development. But it was also this wonderful escape to get to, to California for two, two to three months. Remember the last day of, of baseball, you know, we'd load up in a VW bus and, and you know, would drive down to Southern California to hang out with our grandparents and take swim lessons and go to the beach every day. And said, it was a really good trade. And, you know, in that environment, it's so fun to go, you know, pretty quickly from, I, usually you classify cities into 12-hour cities, 18-hour cities, and 24-hour cities. Of course, you know, 24-hour cities somewhere like Manhattan where you have professionals working around the clock, whether it's healthcare, you, you name it. Mm -hmm. The city's always alive. Like, it's, it's sure. always easy to go get a meal. And, and, and you know, I, I'd say that the Boise's probably a 12-hour transitioning to 18-hour. We're in the process of that right now. That and feels about right. And Salmon's like eight-hour and not mm -hmm. Sundays. Like, no business is open <laughs> on Sundays there. So you were able to see both sides of the world. And, and I think that translated into development later. Like, uh, just a passion of mine being able to go back and forth to see the differences in society and culture. And, and I'd love that, you know, Caitlin brought up an inflection point in her life and it was being around, you know, children with diverse viewpoints. And for me, it was this, this first realization that there, there were more than different types of Christians in the world. Mm -hmm. I remember being a little kid in school and you're like, oh my, there's Muslims and Buddhists and there's billions of them. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is so mind blowing. I need to learn more. Mm -hmm. And so I was lucky enough to go back and forth through my childhood I, I schooled undergrad and grad here at the University of Idaho, so you stayed pretty local, mainly because I didn't have a plan. I'm very open about that to, you know, people trying to choose you know, what they want to do with their life, and I, I ended up focusing on accounting and finance, and I thought, you know, it's a pretty non-committal way to learn a lot about the world, at least from a business perspective. And at that point in time, I believe I was, I was in grad school, and I, I was always reading Forbes Fortune, anything I could to learn more about the outside world, I was always fascinated with it. Much like Caitlin, I felt like, kind of like the black sheet. Like, there's always something more than you know, cutting hay for the rest of my life. And mm. that's cool. And I love beef. Like it's delicious, but you know, <laughs> I want to go out and see some things. You're and, here. <laughs> and so in that process, I was reading magazine on the cover, of course, is Steve Schwarzman. So he, he founded Blackstone, which is one of the most prolific private equity firms of all time. And he's deemed the, the king of Wall Street. And I thought, uh, this is pretty cool. Like, like maybe private equity sounds good. And of course we all watched the movie, Pretty Woman and Richard Gears, this guy who goes around and buys companies and like, that sounds kind of fun. And he I didn't get nice that point of that movie. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, Richard Gere. I was going I wasn't another direction of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was probably the more fun direction of the movie. But yeah. I, I was intrigued by, wow, you buy his companies. That's uh -huh. pretty cool. And and so that that led me to, to luckily enough, um, well, the, the po choice at that point was either, you know, East Coast or West Coast. I'm definitely a West Coast kid because of all those times in, in Southern California. And I really wanted to surf because I, I surfed a little bit as a kid. And I really wanted to pursue that. So I, I think I, I moved to a city more for surf than work in mm -hmm. a weird way. And, and that really played out. So I was a river guide through college on the middle fork of the Salmon River. Um, the owners of that company actually had a house in Point Reyes, California, which is north of San Francisco. So I had a crash pad, which was great. So I loaded up my Toyota at the time and drove to Northern California to, to find out what I was going to do. And I had no idea. <laughs> and I, but the first thing I bought was a surfboard and a wetsuit and you know, spent quite a bit of time surfing. And, you know, the, Weirdly enough, I was lucky enough to get a lot of introductions through river guests I'd met over time and my outfitter, et cetera, um, to the Bay Area. He, he'd previously worked in finance. And, you know, those meetings went fairly well, but I'm kind of an unknown person, not from a fancy university, and, and I'm trying to break into a pretty prestigious, um, um, uh, what do you want to call it, um, industry. And funny enough, because of a smile on a surfboard and probably an Ido license plate, I got my first real job interview. Mm. So I'd left a surfboard in my, my Toyota, you know, in the bed of my pickup, of course, and it drove, you know, last minute to go to it, 
an interview and I have a suit on. And so there I am after this interview. I think it's the third interview at the time for a really boring accounting firm, which I did not want to take a job in. And I'm loading, you know, pulling the surfboard out of my pickup. And this, this terrible thing happens in the heat that you don't know when you're from Idaho is that the wax will melt off the surfboard and like coat the seat of your car. Oh. And so I'm dealing with this mess with a suit on and this guy in this really fancy, you know, Mercedes Benz jet black S series car. I didn't even know what an S series was really at the time. He says, you know, you have the wrong suit for the job here, stud. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I told him the story. And he says, like, you know, you seem like, you know, a guy who's, you know, pretty driven and aggressive and tenacious. Here's, you know, three numbers. Give them a call. And one of those resulted in a private equity job, which usually you have to go to the best universities. Yeah. And wow. And, and I thought that was cool until I ended up in, in a basement being an analyst for 16 hours a day and said, but also I, I was just grateful to have a job there. And so, so ultimately that led me to Southern California because a better surfer, surfing less sharks, again, a theme. And because of that experience at, at a great firm, I was able to, to really write my own check and import to, to other opportunities in Southern California. And there I transitioned from an M&A to, to real estate development. So I was working for a family office that had both, both practices at the time. And main reason for that was, is, you know, buying companies, tearing them apart, wasn't all that exciting where you're just trying to optimize for the dollar. And maybe this is central to, to my view on development to this day is it's, it's never really been about the dollar. It's been about the mission and the passion mm -hmm. um, you're pursuing. And I really lucked out there because the, the first firm I worked for, and sorry, I'm probably taking way too much time. Oh, no, I love this. It's great. Is that it was Weintraub Financial. And Weintraub Financial was this really unique boutique development firm, um, mainly because I, I believe what Richard's mom was, was, you know, on the, the LA what, district school board of many things was a philanthropist. He came from a pretty well-heeled family in, in, in Los Angeles, Southern California. So just had a vantage point, almost like we could in Idaho. You know, it's, it's kind of a small state, you know, people, and it's nice to be around people in a, in a city of, of 10, 12 million that knew people. And sure. because of that, his ability to, to maneuver political settings and get access to really interesting deals. And, and I think that's where a lot of the, 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 magic of development can really take play. And, you know, I'd love to get into a delineation later in between development and buildings. I think there is a big difference. And, you know, we were doing things that we first exciting project was purchasing a, a deconsecrated um, Catholic church in downtown Los Angeles on second and main street and converting that into an event center. And, wow. you know, here you are this, you know, kid from Idaho, you know, chasing around chandeliers from the archdiocese <laughs> of Los Angeles, you know, as part of your job, it was mm -hmm. so cool and so fun. And it was so much better than spending, you know, 16 hours in a basement in, in, in San Francisco. And really working with practitioners like that, that had a vision and a lot of conviction to make something new and take a lot of risk in the meantime. I mean, one, one of the headliners I'd like to say in, in the world of development is that developers take on a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, that led to, of course, another job and started a cell phone video company in the meantime with some other friends in a basement. That turned out well. It's when we transitioned from, you know, flip phones to, you know, actual data phones. So that was a really exciting time in the industry. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the crash happened. And at that point in time, we had several projects in Venice, California, downtown Los Angeles, California, um, Malibu, California. We were able to exit all of them successfully. We, we had one still on the books that we were selling out of in Venice. That, that, and, you know, thank God. You know, we made it out with, with kind of our shirts on our back and our skin, but that was a really scary time in, in 2008, 2009. And we, we went with the pivot to a debt purchase strategy, but of course that was really hard to replicate the success of the SNL crisis mm -hmm. um, just because big players were really getting involved and it was a different trade. So um, ended up packing up my bags, moving back to Idaho and, and working with my brother on building a, a real estate finance company. So basically sourcing leads online, um, plugging in those individuals with private lenders, um, here in Boise, you know, this is cool. This is what 2009, 10. So kind of watching the dust settle in the aftermath of the crisis. 
and, you know, really taking a lot of notes along the way. And we were actually financing a lot of properties in Boise, our first kind of deals. And we were lucky enough to do enough loan volume to raise venture capital financing um, from some really incredible investors, you know, on a global scale. Moved back to Los Angeles and built that for a number of years and then ended up back in Idaho, mainly to be next to family and for lifestyle reasons. Crazy stories. Awesome stories, though. Um, so my mind kind of goes in a couple of, of different directions here. But first, let's kind of talk about what you're working on. So um, as a duo, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the developments and projects that are exciting your passions right now. Yep. Well, I, we, have, we have two that we're pretty excited about. And in and, and meeting Caitlin, that's when I, I instantly knew that she would be so fun to work with. You know, she isn't afraid to pick up the phone, ask questions, learn, you know, huge sponge, but also a ton of intellect behind that to, you know, really take that information, process it and synthesize it into something better. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really fun to work on, but it's a long way to answer your question. We, we have a, a project um, in, in Ridian, Idaho just kind of the hyper growth city. I, I can't need, I don't need to say that to everybody listening to this. Probably <laughs> we know. They get it. <laughs> we know. Um, and, and so that's on the corner of Chinon and Linder Boulevard. And, and really when you look at it, that intersection, it's much as Eagle and Chinon was as much as Cole Road was. So it's, mm. it's interesting to watch the trajectory. And I've had kind of had these little exchanges in time of coming back to Boise, which was the big city at the time. It was so exciting to see the capital as a kid. And Cole Road is a big phenomenon. You watch, you know, a shopping mall, you know, that's a big thing. And then the Edwards Cinema Theater, oh, my God, that was earth-shattering for Boise at the time. And we were, our minds were blown you could have that many screens under one roof. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we moved out to, of course, Eagle Road, and that's the first time I think the Treasure Valley encountered real traffic. Mm-hmm. And that was a big shock to the system. And now we're progressing further out west, of course, along the I-84 corridor, and, and it's a little bit broken. It, it's really 10 mile as an off ramp. And then, then the road and traffic swings around to Linder. And I think that was an unintended consequence of, of Spurwing, mm-hmm. the golf course, because it really was kind of this big piece of land where the 10 couldn't connect to um, um, State Street. Yeah. Well, that's right where we live, too. So we're really aware of, of we're seeing it firsthand. The, the traffic yep. change there. So everyone's interested in Orchard Park. I mean, it's it's. I'm, if you if you're a Meridian, then you know that you've driven past. There's a, a Winco. Everyone was excited about that, but then there's this building that is there. You called the barn. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit about what Orchard Park, what the plan is for that, to what it's providing for Meridian? Sure, sure, absolutely. And and I neglected to talk about. We have another in Garden City. We talk oh about yes, I want to talk about both. But why we're at the Meridian, yeah, I'd love to talk about about ab- that one. Absolutely, because you have. What's the best way to say it? Meridian. I think. What What do you say about Meridian? It's the. <laughs> Are you gonna make me say it? I'm, <laughs> like what I how I used to describe Meridian. Yeah, it, it's so cool because it's such a good visual. Uh, like the minivan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When I, when I first moved to Meridian, people would say, "What's Meridian, Idaho?" And I'd say it's kind of the minivan of the United States because it's like this thing you aren't expecting that you would want and then because it's it might not be as like shiny and sexy as maybe like downtown Boise or something Mm -hmm. Um, but then once you've been in it a while and it's so convenient and it's really accommodating you know your lifestyle then you really settle in and kind of can't imagine your life without it yeah not that I drive a minivan but that's you know (laughs) (laughs) no you have a cool car I can attest to that yeah Yeah. but it was such a cool visual and I really feel it's a, a, a Definitely Meridian's focus. I, I will caveat that, that usually the person or the people driving the minivan are professionals and usually mm-hmm. high education base, et cetera. But yeah. 
as far as being family forward and oriented, absolutely. And so I, I think that, you know, because of that, you have a lot of pretty impassioned, impassioned stakeholders that mm-hmm. are raising their families there. They really plunk down roots. They really care about what happens there. And we definitely encountered that at Orchard Park. And in a component of that development that you're, you're asking about, and it's the mini barn, by the way, we have a bigger barn we're building next in that, that mini barn. Something wait, larger. So wait, the thing that there is there is the mini barn. Yeah, that's the mini barn. Okay. This is making so much more sense. Cause as I drove by, I'm like, I'm trying, I can't quite visualize it. Okay, so what we're seeing now is the mini barn. That was like a Derek Zoolander moment. How do you fit everything in there? But, <laughs> but, but no, so yeah, that that's that's the library, and okay. and that's really the first flag in the ground that, that we're focused on doing something different. And, and I'll certainly say that's a money loser for us, but that that's something we wanted to do for the community. So from a technical perspective, that piece of property we're developing, it's eighty acres, just to give you a sense of, of scale, is that we're required because of mixed use. Um, um, actual land use of the properties it's deemed by the city. And that that's actually a public process. And I, we should talk about that too. There's so many mm-hmm. things to dig into is that humans and residents do have a huge say. It's just a matter of, you know, getting out of your house and going. But, mm-hmm. you know, cities are actually very receptive and usually they run, you know, kind of a public process on a five or 10 year scale called the comprehensive plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so this particular area was planned for mixed use. And, and one of the components are checked boxes to be checked on 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 a mixed use development is is you know some type of community features and, and one of those of course can be a library and you know some people you'll notice it in other developments not poo-pooing anybody but i can a little bit because you know there's kind of builders we talked about that build boxes that ain't developers that, that really want to create something for people or what we do is placemaking is that we had this vision of a library anchoring a plaza where, you know, kids play and people connect and conversations can happen. And, and much like your friend who connected us um, being Mel with a coffee shop, she's an integral piece of a community where mm-hmm. those community, like you can build the tapestry of society when people actually talk. Mm-hmm. And so that, that building another long answer, I'm really sorry is it's a library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and just to expand on that, um, so I grew up in a real family real estate business that, my, you know, my family did a great job, but it was very focused on functionality. It was not like the sexy part of development whatsoever. And so mm-hmm. while I loved kind of learning about that, I wasn't super excited because I was always more interested in like these very cool projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what Michael has really gotten right as he's looked at Orchard Park is this idea that there's absolutely a way to make a development like a fabulous place to be, not just make it like I think so many people walk in and they just do the bare minimum because they're focused on the bottom line. But what Michael has always seen is if you actually make a space that's fabulous and people want to spend time at, um, you're going to make more money in the long term. But there's a Upfront, there's more risk and more time that goes into it. Um, and so where I really came in on this was, you know, I I was born with an appreciation for the finer things in life. My, <laughs> my family's not like this at all, but I always really loved art and design. And I loved seeing different hotels and how things were laid out. And I've always had this strong sense that, um, you know, the your environment absolutely affects how you feel and how people respond to each other. And as a result of having had the privilege of, of living in different places, I've really seen that firsthand. And so what we tried to create with Orchard Park is um, almost like Soho in New York, where you can go 
you know, wh- wherever you live in the city, you can show up there and you can get everything done that you need to get done in that day. You can go to your workout class. You can meet friends. You can go to a creative co-working space. You can pick up your laundry. Our vision for Orchard Park has really been for it to kind of be a town in and of itself, mm-hmm. an essential meeting point where you can just go from your neighborhood and you could realistically spend six, seven hours there just doing different things without getting bored. There's something intriguing about that, the sustainability of not having to go all over the valley to get everything done, which everybody does that right now, but to consolidate as much as you can, that feels like the right thing for a community. Well, and also for Meridian, like we talked a lot about this, but there, one of the things about being intentional with when you're, when you're doing something like this is to understand that every city has its own culture and its own needs. And Meridian has different needs than say Garden City. But uh, people in Meridian, it, there's it, there's so many families, um, and we are a lot of us bringing kids along, uh, and that's one thing that when you have a city that's growing so fast like Meridian, you don't have to have really cool businesses to make them profitable. I mean, you can build a box and it still works because people need the space, people need a home, so the homes can be extremely traditional. They don't have to have great architecture here because people are going to buy the houses. So the, but at the same time, it's becoming so sterile because developers don't have to invest in a, in a place for a business to go there. They're going to go there. So when I was listening to what Orchard Park was going to be, it felt so correct for as a mom who lives in Meridian and with young kids is that I don't want to drive all over town. I want to go to a place where if I'm going to have lunch, I'm also not feeling guilty bringing my kids with me because they're also having something there they can enjoy. We can go there as a family and feel like we, the time that we spent there was spent in quality. And, you know, when we have such a small amount of time with your kids, cause you're so busy all the time or with your, your date nights, they, they need to be kind of cool. They need to be special. And Meridian, you know, we have some things like that, but like that's something that we desperately need with the influx of, of people, I think, at this point. So I was super excited. Also, there's some really cool things you have going on um, in the park that people might not expect, like uh, some of your hobbies you're bringing in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oh, my God, you just said so many wonderful things there. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just get so excited about, you know, the insightfulness and, you know, just putting some thought into this, a lot of this is just driven out of passion, but when you try to distill down what you're accomplishing, it's a couple things I think are really central to, to what we're trying to do and also what we're fighting against. I feel that you know, development, you have to think about, especially Western United States, it's very different than Eastern United States with the exception of San Francisco. San Francisco is a, you know, a, a peninsula, it's eight, eight, thousand, or sorry, eight square miles. And so they were so geographically constricted, it looks much more like European development mm-hmm. where, you know, the, the car really ruined development and, and, and was only exacerbated in, in kind of the post-World War II economic boom where you had Manifest Destiny take over. People were staking claims in the West United States. Remember, this is only 150 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's nothing. We're so, we always think that we have all this experience, but we're, we're in toddler stays here in, in America. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it was kind of that, I don't know, systemization of development that, that really scarred the earth in a lot of ways where you talk about boxes is such a great thing to talk about is 
there was just this rinse repeat model and and you know this is where i like to pull everybody into the specter is we're all guilty of you know we like growth you know if, if you're running a city or if you're you know running a ski hill or you're running anything you know a bakery you want to sell more buns in a day mm-hmm. yeah it's just what we're all focused on is that's a metric of success and usually leads to more economic prosperity and you know the same is true with what happens physically is is you know a lot of growth takes place but sorry i'm trying to bring this around to your threads and then get on, oh, no, on the topic great. of things you know th- that we're offering on the site and it's we are really fighting this hangover this institutionalization of hey let's go build boxes and mm-hmm. classically you know homes are built and in cities when they're in the really early stage talking like you know kind of um what adolescent or pre-pubescent easy tax income comes through more rooftops and so it's really easy to, to just keep pulling more property into your municipality and increasing the tax base because that, you know, that, that money or that growth is where you can, you, know, you can utilize to build new schools and more infrastructure becomes a self-reinforcing wheel. And then, of course, you know, the commercial developers come in and say, hey, we need some boxes. And you know, back, especially before e-com, we all needed those conveniences. Mm-hmm. Much like you were saying, you just want to run to a place, get what you need, and go home. And that really tore apart society. You know, a small town like I grew up in, we had one Main Street. You know, all the kids would kind of hang out on Main Street if they wanted to find something to do. If I was lucky enough to get the town from the ranch, that was. But, you know, then you go to sub- suburbia, and it really dehumanized, you know, the human experience. Sure. Where everybody drives with their minivan to go get the groceries, to go home, to roll down their garage door, to hide out in their house. And probably too big of a house, by the way. You know, three, four, 5,000 square feet. You don't need that much. But that was part of suburbanization, too, is like the promise of a cheaper home that's bigger Mm-hmm. Um, with your own yard. And so we're fighting this hangover. And, and ultimately, it's so easy to replicate that model. And the money is really easy. So, you know, I know one of the things we're going to talk about, too, is you know, kind of the evil developer. And there's definitely that out there. There's a lot of it where it's easy to put boxes out and, you know, make money and move on. And now we're kind of in that period of, of refocus. And I think a lot of that is, is encouraged even post-pandemic, where there's, you know, adoption of, of technologies that are allowing people to stay home more, which cuts down on traffic, hopefully. And you know, even though we kind of have this, this big mess of suburbia across America, is I, I think there's a refocus on building these nodes. Like like Caitlin's talking about is how can you create, I, I, this is probably last year's cool moniker, hipsterbia. It almost is this hipsterbia <laughs> in, in a weird way where you can get all of your needs met and it also shrinks carbon footprint and also promotes community. Yeah. And I think that Garden City could do that a lot easier than, I think Meridian's a little far gone. I mean, I love Meridian and I'm focused there, but when we moved from Tennessee, I was very uncomfortable in Meridian because it felt like suburban chaos. It felt like nobody had thought this through and it was just so many neighborhoods. And so I love that you're bringing this thing, something in to kind of help with that in the land that we have left. But I feel like we need to learn from, from what Meridian maybe didn't do well because we shoved a lot of of homes in a, in a very small amount of space. And, you know, our schools are very, very full. And, uh, and it's concerning because as someone who lives there, I don't see any stop to that. Yeah. It's concerning from the, from the perspective of a person who lives here to see how it's done. And I guess there, there was something about what you said, Michael, about uh, tax base, right? There's, there's increased tax base by more houses, more roofs equals more taxes, which implies that we're going to use those taxes on a lot of things that are going to benefit the public. However, in Meridian, we're in the thick of a situation where we lack schools. I mean, our capacity of schools seems to be 
um, a significant issue. I At mean, the same time, we have a wonderful amount of parks, which we talked yeah. to Tammy DeVere, who was the mayor for 20 years. And 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 you could see the struggle even in leadership. It's it, it's not like we're throwing our leadership under the bus. I just don't think anyone's ever quite ready for a growth like this. And I think they were doing you know the best that they could. But I think it's a lot of uh, it's so complicated that there's just not one answer. And I'm grateful that they did do you know the parks that they've done and and what they are doing. But you know it, it, I think there's just a general vibration of nerves and fear of what's mm-hmm. happening. And so, you know, to see, okay, well, what, we, this is where we're at now. So what do we do with it? And that's, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up too. And, and, you know, I always, it's tough because municipalities are doing the best they can, as you said. And when you're in, you're transitioning, you know, I, what's the best way to describe it? You usually have one big city, then all these little towns around it. And, and there's somewhat of a result of that growth. And so what happens is usually they grow on the fringes first. And that's why, you know, Napa downtown was focused on late and Meridian downtown. It's finally starting to come up mm-hmm. out of the ashes, if you want to say that. And that's why I think it's really valuable for, for Caitlin and I to travel quite a bit as well and live in other areas. And, and I feel that Southern California, in a lot of ways, is, is you know, kind of a, a cautionary tale, mm-hmm. you know, at least until the 80s or 90s. And now, now it's going through this new phase. So, you know, of course, this is where you know, mass production of homes was really revolutionized by Coffin Broad. They were able to figure out how to build single family homes very, very cheaply and roll them out through America. And that, that's why, you know, the, the founder of that company buys a lot of art and builds buildings for a lot of people now, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, he did a really good job at it. And there are several other companies really emulated that model. But then you had all these post-World War II communities that went into disrepair, you know, Long Beach, for instance, and, you know, a lot of portions of outer, outer Los Angeles that, now it's weird. They're they're hitting that second inning. They're getting nice again. Hmm. It's um you know you even look at at, at these new kind of I don't I don't know. It's almost like a, a grenade of 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 um gentrification. Gentrification is such a touchy word. Anyways, I hate to say that word, but it's scary. If I get mm-hmm. an hour podcast just talking about that, but look at the new L.A. Ram Stadium and how that groundswell effect is happening. And and when I was living in in, in Malibu, then later I got tired of driving, so I moved to Santa Monica. I figured that one out. Is that this this progression, Culver City was seedy. Now it's awesome. You know, a lot of great business beats by Dre's headquartered there type thing. And then mm-hmm. now it's Adam Street's the next big deal. And it, it moves inward. So you, that that first wave of growth is really scary. And, and we're in that. It, it's kind of, you know, in California, it was all orange trees to homes. And now they're coolifying things, if that makes sense. Like everything's getting more hip and there's this whole new urban energy that's coming in and we're in the cornfield to first iteration and mm-hmm. it sucks. And so as much as I, I kind of agree with you that, that, you know, Meridian's kind of gone, we're fighting so hard to build a cultural center. And, you know, we, like I said, the, those tenets that we're really focused on is, is, is building community and building dialogue. I feel that a lot of the challenges we're seeking, you know, we're facing today is that, you know, humans all drink from, you know, one media source or another, they identify with it and they, they for form one set of beliefs that's really dangerous. They're not getting like a 360 degree view of situations. And, you know, usually we don't have enough hours in the day to provide, you know, kind of have the analysis to, to, you know, dig deeper into issues. But that happens if you hang out at a coffee shop with different people. Sure. Like you hear different perspectives. Sometimes it's painful because it doesn't align with yours. But mm-hmm. so number one tenet is really building community and, and creating that, that library and that plaza. And some of the things you're talking about that actually are exciting is to get people there to 
trick them into having conversations. Yeah. <laughs> We're building a surf wave, you know, inside <laughs> of a bar. Because, you know, you get enough people there and together, beautiful things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the second one is is what, what Caitlin's talking about with design. There's a reason for it. It's just, it's hard to understand. It's kind of the dark arts of development, in my opinion, is we all love interesting things and we all love tapping into our curiosity as you think about us as humans we're so cool when we're kids because you know we'll paint all day and we're in this like this little world that's so fun to imagine and we kind of lose that as adults and and how do we kind of bubble that to the surface again build cool shit yeah. it gets people thinking right and gets them thinking differently and so i think that you know we put a lot of emphasis into that as well and the third one is you you touched on it is um you get people to reduce car trips and be able to do more things in one place. It's also better for the environment. Mm-hmm. My mind is caught up in this, I, this, in the spectrum of cooperation with the public, right? Building communities, you said communities and dialogue or something that you're passionate about. Um, but how do you do that? I mean, it feels almost as if there's a spectrum on one end, there's consensus, uh, decision-making by consensus. And then on the other end, there's decision-making by uh, um, autocratic, right? One person makes the call and it's hard to have those conversations. I remember in our neighborhood several years back, they were starting to build the first little apartment complex mm-hmm. on the corner. I mean, it was teeny tiny comparatively to everything else that that's going up right now. It was, uh, but it kicked up so much dust And there were people fabricating flyers as far as the intentions of the developers and just fomenting a lot of negative, um, a a lot of animosity in the public towards the developers based on misinformation. So that whenever the time came that the community meeting was scheduled, it was, I mean, talk about take a dog and shake it and get angry and then put it in the middle of a bunch of a bunch of kids. That's how it went. terrifying don't use that again it was terrifying because i had never seen i had never seen so so many suburban homeowners be so vociferous and angry before the developer even had a chance to say anything i mean they were so wound up and so i understand there's a it seems like it's a struggle to get people online with a new way of thinking about things and how do you get them to think of living in a different way whenever we're so accustomed to living in suburbia. All of us have our own houses. We've got a lot of space. We have our yards and we have one plot of land. This is ours and my fence stops here. And then the next one is yours. How do you get them on board with a different way of thinking? I'm kind of curious from your perspective, uh, Caitlin, being in Hong Kong, completely different culture, different way of going about their days in New York City also. Tell me, how do you, how do you bridge the gap and have better dialogue with people to have them change the way that they think about living? Well, I think those experiences have definitely um, really helped me throughout this process because, you know, when you're only surrounded by people that have had the same experiences as you, you assume that everybody is evaluating things from the same perspective. And when you're forced to live in a situation, well, when you live in a situation where people are very different and come from different angles, you learn how to have those conversations. And... Coming into this project at a later date, I was very worried about these exact things. And Michael and our other partner, Tony, um, had handled it so well that it was interesting because as we were having these conversations, what became very clear is that people feel that Meridian is very underserved and that it doesn't have a lot of personality. And so what they're afraid of is 
boring stuff that's just going to make the community ugly. And as soon as they kind of found out what was happening, they were actually really excited. And I think the general response has been really positive. But I think the other thing that Michael and especially Tony have done is anyone that has expressed, you know, skepticism over this project, they actually went and had direct conversations with them to understand like, oh, what, what are you afraid of? What would you like to see? And I think that that is not common when it comes to these meetings. Um, I, I think what typically happens is the developer shows up, people express their discontent, and there's never really a conversation. But if you're addressing those concerns before you even get to those meetings, then those conversations can be a lot more productive. It feels with my experience in in dealing with cities and developers and the public, oftentimes the plan is already made long before um, conversation with the public starts. A developer or, um, uh, comes with an idea. They have to they have to design at least to a rough you know scale of what this thing is going to look like, and then they have to determine rough order of magnitude or what it's going to cost. So they're already building this idea before they even come and propose it to the city, and so. I guess what I'm trying to say is that at some point it seems like typically the plan is already baked before the public even gets a chance to look at it. And I think that that stirs up a lot of animosity. It's like, man, you've, you're not really open to changing that much because you've invested a lot of money and time into this particular idea. And now you're asking us to get on board with it as opposed to more dialogue as to what you would want to see before we even get things started. Just my experience is, is the former more, here's the plan, can you be okay with it? As opposed to, hey, here's an empty lot, what do we do with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, lucky enough, hell, I'm getting older, so I've done this a decent amount, is that you see several iterations. And you're right, sometimes that is the case where, hey, we're, we want to do this, we want to cram it down your throat. Another strategy is, is I'm going to design it five times bigger than I actually need it financially. You'll feel good about taking certain stories away of a high rise, and then you feel like you won one too, so we can squeak it through that way. And that, that was learning from others, right? And and I, I think that our approach, what, what people need to appreciate is, you know, even this building we're sitting in now, it's only here because somebody took a risk on building it. This is actually an opera house. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah. It no, that's cool. so bitching. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a risk. You, you yeah. have to, like, hope a lot of people show up and give you a ticket so you can financially support a building. Like, that's a big deal. But where, where we start is, is when we're looking at a property, you're right, you, you need some basis of starting, and you're right. And I, I hate it when you let the community enter so late. But I, I guarantee if you let them enter day one, they want the whole thing to be a dog park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And and it's like, we hear that a lot. That was always the joke in LA anyways. Like we should just, the whole thing should be a dog park. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there'd be no reason to build and no reason to take any risk because there, there's no economic upside. And, and to the point earlier, we all exist in some physical structure because somebody took a risk to build something. All of us. I mean, we're all kind of guilty of it in a way. But what, what we do, I'll, then I'll share my approach, is that, you know, the, the first thing you need to look at, you just, you look at the code in what's by right. And, and, and this is particular, geog- like, geographically, Idaho is very much a by right state, which is good and bad. But at least you understand the guardrails of what could be developed. And from there, you have to de- kind of design a, f- a, a plan that's going to make sense financially. Otherwise, you're not even going to purchase the property or pursue the property. And so there's some basis of it. And I, I this is the intriguing part that I don't think anybody has it right, is... That's where, my opinion, a few plans should be offered to a community to talk about. Because there's a certain amount of trade-offs. You know, if you want the dog park, cool. We just need to build two more stories on this building to financially justify that dog park. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it could be a more kind of constructive dialogue like that. And we do that quite a bit, actually. Even in Garden City, we're putting in free public restrooms because from a municipal perspective, that just hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And so we try to anticipate some of those needs. There's too. no stopping mm-hmm. this development, this change. This We live in America. It's based in capitalism. That's that's our That's our country. And we are growing so fast. And so the idea of we just want this field to stay empty forever is not an option anymore. So, or do you disagree? I think I disagree that that's what people are wanting. I don't think think that people don't want just empty field to stay an empty field. No, I I think that they want say in how that empty field changes and what they're going to see uh, in its next life. I don't think that people want stagnation. I think that they just want some, a bigger set of seat at the table for having the conversation for but what that's it looks an assumption like. that if empty field is stagnation i mean we're looking at this huge empty field that's on uh fairview and eagle across from the village which will be developed i mean that's going to happen but i think people love that it's a farm i don't think they find that farming on that is stagnation i think they the, the idea that part of what idaho was remains it, it's i don't think they're i don't think that that's something I guess I would say people are mourning that uh, I'm mourning that I th- yeah to some extent I think that there is a desire for some remnants and some reminders of what we used to be if we forget our history if we build over all of our history and there's no evidence of what we used to be or where we came from then I mean how do we remember the lessons of the past and who we were to kind of chart our future into where we're going to to be later, um, which I think just feeds back into, well, how are we going to use it? Boy, I have two fun responses, hopefully. <laughs> one, one on the history, nod to history, it, which I think is part of intentional development. First, I want to touch on input from a community. Is The cool thing is now, it, hopefully people hear this, you know, that are listening to this right now, that there is a mechanism in place in every city. And, and what, what cities do is, is they have a comprehensive plan. You can go to their website right now, public information. You can understand what the vision is for that community. And that was really the result of a, a, a lot of work and effort from the city planning staff. And so that, that's, that's public forum, a lot of workshops to get to a comprehensive plan. It's, it's a, a big accomplishment for a city, and they're really proud of that. And, and you have these planners that work so hard. And like, I, I want to give a shout-out to the planners, not selfishly because I want them to be nice to me <laughs> in the next you know, entitlements, but they work so hard, and they do have visions for walkable societies and all the good stuff. So they go to school and practice. You know, they study this for years. But we have that comprehensive plan piece where everybody from the community can walk in and sit down at a workshop and talk about what they want, and they're heard. And a lot of those comments get incorporated into this this really kind of you know menu list of, of things that we can go build. So that's what I go look at first when I have this blank sheet of paper and a piece of property. I, I consult the comprehensive plan. And ultimately, I mean, we use it as kind of a way to justify what we're doing, right? And I, I, hopefully we do that in an altruistic way. But that's there. And, and please, anybody online, hear this and go do that. Mm-hmm. And usually every five or ten years, cities update that, and that translates into, so you have a comprehensive plan, which translates into a land use map or a future land use map. So cities are, do a decent job of this, is they try to envision how to incorporate in new property and what the use is going to be. We just looked at 80 acres in, in Eagle, and they had a good idea because of their future land use map what that property could become. It's not annexed into the city at this point. And so that it's cool. It's there. It's just a little delayed. It's, you know, you don't roll out from eating Tostitos on 
you know, Monday night and go yell at the person across the street trying to build something. You need to go a couple of years in advance. Mm-hmm. And so people need to plan a little more. But, and, and said, but uh, to the second point of nodded history, that's, that's such a huge thing. And it, it's, that's why we have the name Orchard Park. You know, a lot of people living in, in Meridian or anywhere for that matter don't understand the history. And, you know, not for any particular reason. We're all busy in our lives and just take things at face value. But the first economy in Meridian was actually orchards. It was, it was apples and plums. It made sense because you had this this pretty fertile piece of ground. Irrigation had just been brought through. And we had a rail car system that, that went through the town. So it was easy to, to harvest, throw in a rail car, monetize your, 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 your crops, and then later went into dairy. And so that's why the name Orchard Park. And some people thought it was a little strange. Like, well, it's not an Orchard Boulevard. They're Orchard there too. But mm-hmm. we wanted to create a sense of place. And, and with that, that's why we have these series of barns is they're really a nod to a bucolic, you know, stylization and also a nod to Americana. Because we're all kind of happy about the 50s, right? That's the economic boom times and, you know, everybody's having a lot of fun. So we want to bring, we're bubbling that feeling up that we're still good again. Or yeah. still good, I guess. I feel like this is late. Um, Caitlin, tell us a little bit more for those of us who don't know about Orchard Park. We've heard about the barn and the library Something about a little surf park, a little surf something going on there. But what is the master plan? Besides that, working out, what else is going to be there? Um, so the development is really divided into three different areas. On the exterior, we have the quick retail, which, you know, are the buildings you've probably already seen popping up. Um, and then our two, I think, most exciting areas are the, the Crystal Barn, which is the larger barn where the surf park will be. Um, we've got some really incredible restaurants on a level that I don't think we've ever seen in Idaho before coming. Um, there's going to be some creative working space. We are very focused on bringing kind of a, a wellness, like a lot of workout studios, a lot of things for self-care into a section of the barn. So it'll be like a, I like to think of it as a wellness oasis where you can go work out and then get a facial. Um And then the second large area is the collective, which will also have more sit-down restaurants as well as um, a lot of retail. And we're bringing in a lot of local entrepreneurs and businesses, but we're also focused on bringing in uh, national people that have never had a presence in Idaho. So not definitely not chain stores. We're looking for things that are much more specialized, um, but maybe, you know, it's a boutique that has four locations already in the country, but this is kind of an interesting next spot for them. Mm. Cool. And are we allowed to talk about any of the specifics? I mean, I know some of the specifics. I'm excited, but I don't know what you what you can say. Yeah, it's um Perfect point. What Caitlin's talking about with a few locations is the Wilder. That's yeah, it. That's what I'm so excited about. They do such a great job. Mm-hmm. And in, in one of the things that became really apparent, and we're only mentioning ones that the leases are signed. Like sure. you're right, you have so many conversations ongoing, but you know, it's it's so valuable to curate the right group of people that you just want to make sure you're signed on the dotted line before you announce anything. And um, we do have a, a Michelin star chef. Technically we're signed, but I want to save some surprises that's sure. mm-hmm. doing two concepts in the barn. And in yeah, shifting to the barn for a minute, it, it's I came to this realization this weekend is is we're really a planet of immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about you know before humans were here, you know, megafauna was here, and you know before that, plants were here, and they're all kind of pissed that the next group shows up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, ma- plants are like, oh, what's this you know big megafauna eating me and sleeping on me every <laughs> night? Like this kind of sucks, and then 
we show up like, oh man, they're so easy to shoot and kill because they're so big and slow. We ate all of them, by the way, mm-hmm. us humans. And, and then we've just kind of wandered around for quite some time. You know, we live on this ball, it's four and a half billion years old. And I was really thinking about this too, is like we all want to claim that we're from somewhere. And I was wondering what the, like the point is that we're actually naturalized in a location. We can claim it as our own. And mm-hmm. I think it's earlier and people think, and we should get in the cultural clashes, you know, at some point in time about people moving the town and I have some theories on that. But um, yeah, we are bringing new experiences to town, but I always want to emphasize is that we're really a world of immigrants and in a clash of cultures. And that's the exciting part is, is it's almost this dialogue with the local community and where it really bolsters. So it's fun to have new flavors, like right from new chefs. I mean, David and Lizzie Rex with the Wilder, they came from Southern California, did a wonderful job with some top, top restaurants in that area. And that's why the service levels are so good. They're just, they're good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And they worked really hard to have, you know, the opportunities that they've made for themselves. But, you know, and we want to keep that up again, why it's benefits society is all those ingredients come locally. I mean, any good restaurant or chef, they're buying ingredients locally. And, to talk to chefs from out of town that, that are really interested about being here in Idaho is sure we're known for potatoes and we make really good potato. We grow really good potatoes, but I mean, our beef, our grass fed scene, our mm-hmm. fish, you know, a lot of our vegetables we're spot on. And yeah. so new chefs are really excited to be here. And then we have of course local, local labor that, you know, works there. So th- there's a pretty cool economic kind of set of benefits that happen by doing this. And then the barn. Really <laughs> oh, I, I like that idea that, well, we're all new here. I mean, I mean, we've all, we've all been here under 50 years and, um, and so we're all just kind of in this human experience for the first time, every single person on this planet. And I don't care if you could say you're this many generations anywhere, we're all new here and we're all just learning it. And so I, I, I like that perspective. Paint a picture for us. What does Orchard Park look like in 10 years, in 20 years? Oh man. How does the development age with the community? That's a great question. We spend a lot of time on that too. It's, I, I'm really sad we can't just build out a stone. I think labor is just not as cheap. You can't like people, you know, like running chisels and things like that all day to build mm. some of these beautiful buildings in a downtown. It just doesn't pencil economically. True masonry is a lost art. Oh my gosh. It's not sustainable. It's fantastic. Beautiful, but uh, who does it? We need more of those, what, indentured servants. <laughs> I'm kind of being funny. Ouch. <laughs> I think that's a lot of it got built, right? Um, uh. But no, it, it's to answer your question, is, is that's why we really lean towards an Americana silhouette. And, and we're using good materials. I mean, we have a lot of glass and stone. Funny enough, that's a really hard process to get through a city because they put protections in place for unimaginative development. It also cuts the opposite way. So imagine... A city says no 100% steel building because they're afraid of this industrial thing with all mm-hmm. this, you know, terrible mm-hmm. kind of sheet metal on it. And, sure. and here we are offering 100% glass building. And so, well, the code doesn't really read that way. Mm-hmm. Guys, this is a glass building. This is a no-brainer. <laughs> and, yeah. and we'll get there. So we're using a lot of timeless materials. And a lot of the rules there are, you know, stone, wood, glass. And so you'll you'll notice that, you know, the, the collection that we're talking about, kind of that, that it's a very visually kind of in, in dynamic shopping experience, which humans love. I mean, a lot of shopping today is all about, you know, really it's, it should be impulsive a little bit, usually because we deserve it type thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny. I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here, but we have these glass buildings that are all stood up with, with mass timber construction. So imagine these great beams. And I think that's played pretty well as an aesthetic too. As you look at mid-century modern, why are we all still in love with it? It was great. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're really focusing on accomplishing. D- don't pay attention to the Wendy's. Like that's pretty bad. <laughs> but it serves a purpose too. Like, <laughs> but when you get to the core development that, that 
Caitlin was talking about, it's really broken into three areas. We have quick, quick service along the highway. Highway, you're never going to build something wonderful. Cars are doing 70 miles an hour on it. But when you go to the interior, we have a lot of glass, stone, and wood. Okay. I'm always curious uh, uh, about how something ages. Natalie, what you said earlier is that in these times of booms, I mean, people have just thrown things up. And now we're stuck having to deal with them for decades later. And it's like, well, now it's a big... Now, what do we do with it? There was not a lot of forethought given at the time to um, some of these houses or some of these developments. And now we're forced to be creative, more uh, more creative now, you know, in the future to try to make something out of it. I'm just curious about what what is the best case scenario for any kind of development as far as how long it stays relevant in a part of the community and adds to rather than detracts. Well, also it's the hope for a legacy project. I think a lot of things are just thrown up because they don't care. I mean, I think there is an intentionality that you do want to have some kind of legacy with this. And uh, when you think, okay, I want this to be something that generations can experience, it's a totally different uh, conversation. I will also say that I'm actually very hopeful for Meridian beyond the Orchard Park development. There are certainly a lot of, um, you know, strip malls and areas that, are not great right now. But if you look at a lot of parts of California, like I was just in Palm Springs and I went to one of the coolest restaurants I've ever been to and it was in a strip mall. And I think there's just something about something having been there for a while, even if it wasn't cool initially. I mean, this is what Brooklyn basically is, is like taking things that were just kind of crappy Mm -hmm. and, you know, playing off of that and making that really cool. And so I think over the next 10 years, we're going to really see some of these developments being taken over by um, people with more Im- imagination um, and, and things changing overall. But my my hope and my belief with Orchard Park is that this was done in a very timeless manner and with so much intention that I, I think when you approach things that way, they last for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm. He just killed it. I, I didn't think that, you know, L.A. people would actually focus on what's on the inside. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, funny, but, but I've been there seriously. for a long time. It's, it's very true. It's, you will. Some of the best restaurants are in strip malls because LA is littered with them. That's really the epicenter of sprawl. Yeah. Mm. Um, but sorry, that was just a tongue in cheek joke of like, you know, LA people being so superficial. We had somebody from LA on the podcast say exactly the same thing. Yeah. There's a lot of value placed on external versus internal. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. when you have a strip mall to work with, man, you'll make that really cool on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's great though if you don't start that yeah. way. It's nice when you yeah. start with something different. But, yeah. and we've talked a lot about Orchard Park. And one thing that I do want to talk about is you're, you have another project, which is a totally different feel because you're mm-hmm. going, in a totally different area. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Garden City? Yeah, and, and this is this is really a passion project for all of us. I, it's, it's, it's only two acres, but by more urban infill standards, that's pretty big. Although mm-hmm. there's some, there are a lot of things happening in Garden City that are very exciting. And, you know, this is, this. so we have different capacities, you know, I, I think in our company that we serve and of course, Caitlin's really the taste, the worldly tastemaker and, and can understand trends. Some people are just better at that than others. And mine's really just, I geek out on design. And, you know, a cheat code for doing that is, is really looking to history, you know, to your point about trying to bubble that up and make people remember. And that's where a lot of inspiration comes from. So, and, and Tony's like the really smart spreadsheet guy. And I, <laughs> I could make some funny jokes, but I won't. But His wife <laughs> says the same thing. <laughs> but no, he's like a deal maker and so shrewd and so awesome. You know, he, we're a benefactor of him from Southern California. Um, and he retired here when he's probably 40 type thing. And he does business for fun. He's just so brilliant and so fun to be around. He's so upbeat and just a wonderful person. So I, it'd be fun to have him here. He's hilarious. 
Um, but so the the project in Garden City, first I like to, to point out why Garden City exists, you know, getting back to the history mm-hmm. and the design and inspiration is that some really smart business people in 1949 got together and said, hey, let's create a gambling haven. Others, you know, other municipalities and states were doing this. You know, gambling, of course, is federally legal and states can either say, yes, you can do it here or not. And of course, you know, Nevada to, to kind of a lot of success decided, hey, let's go all in on gambling. And so th- this group of business people started a little municipality called Garden City. And that's why it's so close to downtown Boise. And that lasted five years until the state stepped in and actually shut the gambling down. So the state, sorry, why um, illicit activity, you know, mm. of course it's Vice. bad. Yeah. Just like drinking and naughty, all terrible things. <laughs> yeah. they, they say you go to what heaven for the climate, you go to hell for the company. But <laughs> <laughs> leave that for another episode. But so there's, there's this fun, it was called the fun town really. And, and, it harkened back to its roots. Even before then, it was actually um, hay fields. You know, um, is it's adjacent to the Boise River and this big floodplain for for raising hay for the cavalry um, when they were out here west. They were the immigrants at the time, right, fighting off the Native Americans. And in Fort Boise was what they were really feeding at the time. So, and at that point in time, the cavalrymen would get drunk down on the river shore as well. So it's always kind of this history of hanging out on the river. And so that that's where the the inspiration of, of casino came from. And then beach, of course, it's on the waterfront and that really translated into visual architecture too, as we took another deep dive into that era, you know, 1950 and said, okay, what did that look like? And she'll notice a lot of the curves of the buildings really channel that inspiration, which is kind of fun. And you have to dig a little bit deeper to really feel it. And so then when you get into actually past the aesthetics and the function of it is, you know, be really easy to do the unimaginative thing. We've already gotten past the design, right? Because we want it to be timeless and pretty cool is the next thing we did is we could have just built townhomes and left. But, you know, the harder thing to do, when you'll see a theme, like building a library, you know, definitely the harder thing to do, but it was worth it. And mm-hmm. here we're building a, a, a really a, a Hyde Park scale um, commercial corridor along 34th Street. Because we want to make it open for everybody. I mean, one of the classic problems about anywhere on a waterfront is it becomes privatized and, you know, regular citizens don't have access to the waterfront. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to make it a cool place that people can hang out and, of course, a little bit biased towards beach towns, and so it has a lot of the beach town feel. Mm-hmm. And so, go ahead. Oh, no, I was great. So tell us the name again. It's Casino Beach. Casino Beach. Yep. Also, can we talk about the club? Absolutely. Okay. That means we'll have to do it, by the way. Yeah, so that's why I want to put it, it into out the there. universe. Yeah, before, we, before we start this, because we didn't really describe it, so if you could describe <laughs> Casino Park in like a few sentences, what? How are you describing it? it beach town first and foremost. Um, it has what commercial and office uses, commercial on the ground floor, so the street is energized along 34th. And, mm-hmm. and by the way, for those who don't know, sorry, I'm just assuming everybody knows, we've, we've all been there and like it. We're so lucky to be at the only street ending um, that touches the surf wave and, and really looks upon, you know, Esther Simplot Park and Quinn's Pond and kind of mm-hmm. all the action that's happened in Garden City in the last 10 years. It's been this awesome phenomenon. Yeah. And so we have, you know, retail, it's access to everybody. We have a little, um, it's, we haven't really figured that out yet. We have a little tower with a bunch of units in it. It's supposed to be, it'll be some form of a hotel, whether that's even stay six months and rent it out for income, not to touch the Airbnb things. We have it by entitlements. It's a hotel and we're happy to collect bed tax when we need to. And then we have a series of private townhomes and we have a couple single family homes on the site. So it's, it's a pretty complex little city, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. And your plan for when this will be completed? It's... Boy, I tell you when it starts. Yeah. Um, no, no pressure, Garden City. Um, we're, we should have the civil plans, you know, um, finalized the second week of May. So we'll okay. be turning dirt. So, yeah, this is kind of a message to the community, too. Look out. We're going to bulldoze things. Um, we also 
will work very quickly to restore access um, on 34th Street to the Greenbelt. Because we know that's become such a critical access mm-hmm. point. A lot mm-hmm. of people park, they get you know a coffee push and pour, which roast their own coffee. They're awesome people. They mm-hmm. work really hard, do a good job. And then they, they kind of launch out from there to enjoy the rest of the Greenbelt. Yeah. The club, I'm on pins and needles, Caitlin. <laughs> Um, so, you know, as we both mentioned throughout the interview, we have this great love for Idaho, but have at times felt this frustration of like very geeky people and like want to talk about, you know, ideas. And it's not, I, I think there are a lot of people that also would like to engage in that, but there's not always an environment that feels right for that. And so I think that a community is really, um, you know, benefits from being exposed to new ideas and and new experiences. And one of the coolest ways I've seen this happen is through groups like Soho House, if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. this, like these private members clubs. Um, And so what we're intending to bring is kind of a private members club type concept that is uh, focused around, you know, healthy living and new ideas and kind of mutual self-improvement through debate and discussions. And so, you know, this club is kind of already taking place in a very early form without a physical location. Eventually there will be locations at Casino Beach and at Orchard Park. Um, and there there may even be like a pool part to it. Um, so that there, are, there are some of the more traditional members clubs benefits, but the way that it's taking place right now is kind of getting a group of people together that is similarly similarly interested in these new concepts. And so it'll it'll definitely be, you know, more than a year out before this is officially started as a place with a physical presence. But what's coming next is um, more salon dinners focused around different topics. Uh, we'll likely do an NFT to kind of create the initial membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with NFTs or crypto or DAO, but we're, we're both very fascinated by this Web3 concept, which I think actually uh, plays into our overall approach to the development. Like there's, there's this term, um, Web3, which is a focus more on the collective and everyone being involved in the de- in the decisions versus web 2 was about hierarchy is, is in is am i going too off maybe with a little this? high level okay. for me but i'm just a old country boy <laughs> no, I, I think a, yeah. a good way to express it is um well I, I think one of the things that both caitlin and i one of our, our you know commonalities we were starved by was was exploring new ideas and fresh ideas and yeah there's kind of three levels of conversation that happen, they can happen in any circle is, is that kind of the lower level conversation is talking about rumors and hearsay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of. Sure. Talking you know, about people. Really nonproductive stuff. And it happens yeah. a lot. We're all guilty of it. And the next, next kind of level of conversation where we're elevating the conversation by the ways we're going is talking about current events mm-hmm. and, you know, Oh my God, this sports team is doing that. What's happening in the Ukraine. Important. But then the, the level that's fun to dabble in, because that's where innovation happens and ideas connect and, and kind of, beautiful things happen. You hear about that dinner party where the new business was started or Mm -hmm. whatever the case is. And that's in the idea stage. And so we'd like to spend a lot of time there conceptually. And that could be thinking cosmically, for instance, or talking about innovations in technology. And I tell you what, if you get invited to one of Caitlin's parties, you'd be so happy if that's something that appeals to you is that 
you're just, your mind is blown. Like you're tired for three days mentally afterwards because you get <laughs> like in these wonderful conversations that I, I think that, you know, us as human beings, that's what we're so good at. I mean, we're, we're self-aware and we like to innovate and we like to, we want to create an environment for that because this other thing that's happening in Idaho, I think that there would be a missed opportunity is you have a lot of people that are moving here for lifestyle reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they did well in whatever life or whatever career and they came here to raise a family. And so you have these really incredible people that are hanging out in these communities raising a couple of chickens and like they get the Idaho starter kit, you know, they buy the flannel and get the ax and maybe a gun or two. And they're like, man, this Idaho thing is really cool. <laughs> but you know, after a couple of years, I think intellectually, a lot of people get starved and they want to have that connection. So we're, we want to create a place for that. Mm. Awesome idea. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We, Cause we don't have anything like that in Idaho. I mean, it's done in many other cities, but it is, that is the, I think such a difficult thing for me for suburbia. And I've talked about this in other podcasts is, Moving to suburbia and then trying to find my people in my neighborhood mm-hmm. was a tragic mistake. And not that they weren't wonderful people, but we were not interested in the same kind of conversations. And I had to completely take ownership of an entirely different career to find those people. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has that kind of uh, flexibility to find people. So the thought of of an organization that can connect that can, I think, do nothing but benefit everyone well i think you know whether you're interested in the topic that's being discussed at that dinner or not you're getting to see a side of people like a more thoughtful intimate side of people that you might not get to until having encountered that person several times so you might not ever get to them at all and i think it really does lend itself well to building those kinds of friendships Mm -hmm. and often people aren't asked the questions they get them to that place. Like so many people are capable of incredible conversations, but we're just not naturally doing that because we're talking about work and we're talking about what we need to buy at the grocery store or what's happening with our kids. Mm-hmm. But going into an environment where that's just happening, it, it's so intoxicating. Not everybody has the opportunity to do that. That's exciting for mm-hmm. me. Mm. We've covered some serious ground today. <laughs> oh man. And I feel like we could talk for hours yet. Awesome. How, how are we doing on time? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think we should probably be closing up soon, but I feel like there's going to be a lot more conversations to come because, um, yeah, I think you have a lot You have a lot of good ideas and want to keep up with them. Yeah, and I feel like there were, were a lot of things that we didn't really touch on. We didn't talk about uh, building versus development, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more about uh, uh, community involvement. I think uh, we, we could have talked on that a little bit, bit more, um, but for a few future dates. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and we'll keep people kind of, oh, sorry, do, were you? I was just going to say, where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Can you direct them towards a website, a Instagram, Facebook? If they're interested, where do they go? Wait, thank thank you for the, the plug. We do have a website. We're, um, you know, orchardpark.io. IO stands for in and out. We thought it was a cool way to kind of collect, you know, stand out in a crowd. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a geeky reference, for instance. And then beach.casino. Those are the two websites we direct any traffic towards or updates. We're also so busy. We're kind of terrible at it. And we also don't like to beat our chest too much. We rather like to, to show through action. And so you know, one of the things you do is it's a good question. Uh, you can also find us <laughs> on Instagram at ah. L3 group, Orchard Park underscore Idaho, Casino Beach underscore Idaho. And those have just come up, but we're going to be rather active on those going forward. Awesome. Fantastic. Great. Yeah. Well, we're so excited. Um, I'm excited for, I'm excited for all of it. I just think it's really cool. And it just, uh, this conversation makes me feel a little better 
you know, about some of the crazy change that I think we're all kind of dealing with right now. So thank you. Yeah. Look forward to having you both back on sometime. Thank you so much for having us. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at the Boise Bubble. And for more information about our community, follow at Hello Meridian. See you next time. The Boise Bubble Podcast is sponsored by Volkswagen of Boise. Interested in buying a Volkswagen in the Treasure Valley? Head to www.volkswagenofboise.com to learn more.